Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again, David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller hanging out in the Great Smoky Mountains. Ron, what's going on, my man? Jeez, man, cold day here, Dave. A little bit different. Never seen an October day like this one. Uh, actually, last night it went down to 30. Wow. So, wow. You know, we got, we got to below freezing already. So uh, maybe that, I hope that's not going to be what kind of winter. <laughs> <laughs> I think you get a little bit of tease, and then maybe it's going to back off. I, I think it's going to do the same here. We were like 49 or something like that last night. It is 71, or actually 61, really sunny and nice for an afternoon in southeast Alabama. So, hey, listen, there's been a lot going on. We've been kind of missing you. We're going to be talking about that. That a lot to talk about today, Stud. And right off the top, let's talk about last week's show, about the only thing that can stop a Studcast is going to be faulty technology. Maybe a laptop <laughs> falls apart or something. And that's what got us last week when your computer completely fell apart on you. And we, we talked on the phone, and I was like, dude, what's going on? Anyway, so we were not able to record Studcast number 271, unfortunately, last week. Well, we are back in business today, and fans worldwide are finally going to hear Studcast number 271. Welcome back, Stud. Oh, geez, man. It's great to be back, Dave. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, I'm not a great great master of technology, you know, and uh, I guess I got a little age and... uh, and I'm not used to all this, so it's been a it's been a little bit of a uh, an experience so far in uh, getting a new computer and trying to figure things out. So, but I want to apologize to everybody for last week. But sometimes uh, technology is not everything it's supposed to be, and in my case, it's way beyond my control. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, so I have a brand new computer now, and uh, and we have another episode today, and this one's going to help us continue the ride, man. Going to take us mm-hmm. right back to the fall of 1978 when Southeastern uh, had the two territory operation and it was in full swing at this point. Hey, listen, this is all great news. And I know you don't know much about uh, computers, but there are squirrels inside there and they're running faster on this one, evidently. So I'm, we're, we're really happy to hear about that, Stud. All right. But before we get into the next episode, I was kind of astounded by the social media comments that we received about the last Studcast number 270. 
with it, you wanted to do something out of the ordinary, like go back and recap the first full year of Southeastern Wrestling's existence in 1975, which I thought you did an amazing job on. Fans' comments indicated they loved it. That's what counts. And they wanted more. Well, I saw the same thing. You know, I mean, uh, they certainly did like it. And uh, I was really glad to hear that. And and our audience, Dave, is growing so fast that uh, many of our new listeners, uh, they really don't have any knowledge of what happened in my first year as an owner and promoter and what that was like. So I kind of wanted to catch them up, man. Uh, thousands of lit- listeners out there, uh, those riding each week with us from the beginning and those that are just saddling up, uh, they kind of wanted uh, more of these recap shows. That's the way it felt to me. And uh, hmm. so over the past three months, the Studcast, we're going to recap 1976 and 1977. Then we're going to recap 1978, which is the present year that we're in now. And uh, and that's going to end about uh, the end of December of this year, mm-hmm. 1978. <laughs> and uh that should put us around somewhere around the first of the year uh, with new episodes. That's uh, what I, that's what I like about the Studcast because you're you're in order with fall. You're in order when winter comes around in that very year, 1978. So you're kind of going along with the same time of year. If you got a, the chill of the fall, then you might remember that in 1978 because that's what's happening now. So all right, but let me make sure I got all this right. You're going to continue to do more weekly Studcast. From where we are now in 1978 and add in a couple of more yearly recaps, like I think you said 76 and 77 over the next three months or so. And then when we finish 1978 at the end of this year or early next year, then you're going to recap 1978 as well. Did I did I get all that right? Oh, man, you're galloping at full speed, <laughs> Come on, Mr. Pickles. <laughs> you got old Mr. Pickles rolling, man, and not missing a thing. Uh so that's the plan for the rest of this year. And then we're going to begin with 1979 and the Knoxville War. We'll get into that. And that's easily the most difficult and disappointing year in my wrestling career, for darn sure. Wow. All right. Listen, that's uh, that's going to be really cool. I'm, I'm not listening for or hoping for bad stuff in your career, but I'm waiting to hear what happened with all of that. So your personal wrestling history is one really one of the most fascinating of any wrestler or promoter out there anywhere. Speaking of wrestling history, the title for this stud cast number 271 is Tanaka's back and Ron's turning babyface. It sounds like changes are going to be in both territories. So where do we ride first? Well, we're going to start about by racing back, man, almost exactly 44 years to Friday, October the 13th, 1978. Uh, this ride is going to start in southeastern Knoxville with the return of the great Japanese star, Tor Tanaka. And uh, we're going to cover that card for the date, uh, uh, obviously, of uh, October the 13th, 78. We'll talk about the TV that promoted that card. Uh, we'll talk about the results of the card, and then we'll finish with the attendance. And, uh, and I'm also going to take my first look at the job being done by the new booker, Bob Roop, in his first month of 1978 as a booker. Uh, then we will ride south 500 miles to southeastern Gulf Coast. And I just finished, uh, I just turned babyface in Mobile the week before. I was on the last episode, last episode that we did in our normal style. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to uh, 
turn into a cup that that's going to come after a couple of weeks uh then it it happened uh, right after i turned my back on my brother <laughs> for a couple of weeks watched him uh, get the heck beat out of him and uh and this time i couldn't uh and uh he was being he'd been beaten he was being beaten by three guys at once uh the mongolian stomper don carson and gorgeous george jr and uh so we'll cover that event uh, and uh, that match. We'll also cover another great card from Mobile, Montgomery, and Dothan, Alabama. They took place in the same week as this Knoxville card that we're going to be talking about. And then we'll talk about the TV show promoting that card. We'll give everyone the results of the card and the attendance for all three of those cities. And hopefully after all that, we're going to have enough time for another learning tree question at the end of the show. All right, so it sounds like another loaded stud cast, definitely. So who was on the card? Let's start in Knoxville, Friday the 13th of October, 1978. Well, the opening match was newcomer Terry Gibbs versus the great amateur champion, one of the greatest amateurs in, in the history of uh, all of the amateur wrestling, George McCrary. Uh, he had not been in Knoxville since the start of the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. So he's about a year from being out, being back, and he shows back up at the same time. So you got two young stars uh, in this opening match that night. Uh, you got Mike Stallings, who's going to be making his first appearance back in Knoxville since he was sent to Gulf Coast in March of 1978. Uh, and he was facing another newcomer. There are a lot of new people showing up in Knoxville at this point. Uh, he was going to be wrestling against pretty much a veteran veteran wrestler, Ken Dillinger. Uh, pretty well, pretty good reputation around the country as a wrestler. Rip Smith was against the third new wrestler on this card, and this guy was the former star in the old Gulf Coast territory down there, Hippie Mike Boyette. So, you know, we're getting a lot of different people for fans to get a look at down there. In that area, there was the two main events on this card. The first one was for the Southeastern Championship. It had a no DQ clause, uh, and it was with fan favorite and the big man. Wow. And then I'm certainly not exaggerating with that. Tor Tanaka. And he was returning to Knoxville after his powerful run three years earlier in 1975. He'd been gone a long time. And he's going to be facing the number one heel in the territory, Boris Malenko, uh, who is the present TV champion, and he's also the present Southeastern champion. So Bob Roop, after a loss to his rival Kevin Sullivan two weeks earlier, had kind of mysteriously disappeared from Southeastern Knoxville. Uh, Ron Wright, who had become very close to Bob Roop, uh, blamed Kevin Sullivan for Roop's sudden disappearance. And uh, Ron Wright, uh, being uh, the... Uh, the big, big money man that he wanted to be. He placed a 10,000 bounty on Kevin Sullivan's head uh, in honor of his friend to, uh, to really uh, placate him, I guess, for the fact that uh, Bob Roop had suddenly disappeared. So on this card, uh, the week before, there was an unmanned, unnamed masked man uh, mysteriously uh, who appeared from nowhere. And his body was extremely similar to Bob Roop. And he got involved in both Ronnie Garvin's match on this card, the last card, and Kevin Sullivan matches, causing them both to lose. So because of that interference, the last match on this card was a six-man cage match. Okay, uh, Kevin Sullivan, Ronnie Garvin, 
and Jimmy Golden were facing off against Dennis Condry, Phil Hickerson, and Ron Wright's new mask guy that who that have had have really very much resembled Bob Root. And uh, uh, he, they called him the destroyer. So they were managed by Ron Wright. Those three, Ron Wright was going to be handcuffed to the side of the cage, man. So to keep him from interfering. Interfering like he ever interfered. Yeah. Oh, right. uh, hey, that's a great card, though. I mean, it's full of plenty of intrigue for sure. A new mask man called the destroyer that could be Bob Roop joins forces with Ron Wright, who had suddenly put a $10,000 bounty out on Bob Roop's rival, Kevin Sullivan. So how did this all play out on the TV show six days before this card? Well, the TV opened with Kevin Sullivan, Ronnie Garvin, and Jimmy Golden at the set with Les. And behind them was a shot of the still, at this point, unknown wrestler uh, in the red mask. Uh, and uh, he was giving Ronnie Garvin a shoulder breaker, uh, which is a tr- very, very dangerous move. Uh, and, uh, and it was very, very, uh, uh, it was extremely painful, that, that move. And the uh, referee was laying in the photo face down uh, beside the great Malenko. And it was a Southeastern Championship match. So Garvin explained at this point uh, that he and Malenko had been in a very unusual championship match the night before where the first man to break a rule lost the match. Imagine that. Uh, It was a clean wrestling match between Garvin and Malenko. First guy that broke a rule lost the match. And uh, it was for the championship too. So the video at this point was backed up and played. And it showed Garvin. Uh, legally jump off the top rope, Malenko's throat, uh, and the referee started to count. And then this unknown masked man entered the ring. He stomped the referee, and then he stomped Garvin uh, in the back. Uh, He gave Garvin a shoulder breaker. He put Malenko on top of Garvin, and he left the ring. The referee counted Ronnie Garvin out and raised Malenko's hand. Uh, Ronnie asked Les in this, uh, you know, in this first segment of the TV, if the masked man resembled anyone to him. He basically said, Les, who does this guy look like to you? Well, Les couldn't, you know, he's supposed to be an unbiased commentator. That's what all common wrestling commentators mm-hmm. are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he didn't give uh, Ronnie a really straight answer. So then Garvin uh, took it up a notch. He asked Les how many times he had ever seen the wrestler use that shoulder breaker move. Mm. And uh, then Les was even more vague, <laughs> but he had to admit he'd only seen one wrestler ever use that hold. And uh, Garvin uh, really couldn't force him to say the name <laughs> of that particular wrestler. He was having a hard time getting what he wanted to out of Les at this point. Then uh, Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Golden uh, showed a video of their match from the night before. The same masked man got involved. He ended up giving Jimmy Golden a shoulder breaker that resulted in a loss for Jimmy and uh, Kevin Sullivan in a championship match with their for the tag team, Southeastern Tag Team Championship. And uh, so Jimmy asked Les uh, why he just went straight to the point. Jimmy says, yes, Les, uh, why is Bob Root wearing a mask? 
<laughs> so Les didn't answer that either. He, you know, he's like, well, you know. Then Kevin took his turn to question Les. So uh, and he asked uh, how Ron Wright was allowed to put up a bounty on him that rewarded any wrestler $10,000 if they could put him out of wrestling. And again, Les didn't really have much response. I mean, what, what's he going to say about it? So uh, then the three of them kind of took the pressure off of him a little bit. So they, they asked him, you know, Les, we'd like to have, we'd like to get permission from the Southeastern people, especially Don Curtis, to have a six-man cage match against Ron Wright's henchman, Dennis Condry, Phil Hickerson, and this new mass man, whoever, they, whoever he's being called. And, uh, and he said, you know, and they said, we know who he is. He's Bob Root, you know, and they said it would kind of settle all this outside interference from an unknown masked man the next Friday night, like it had been the night before. And in the studio, boy, they, they loved the idea. They, all the audience there. And uh, obviously they made it plain that they did but by their reaction. But the three of them weren't through at that point. They asked for one more thing. They asked that Ron Wright be handcuffed on the outside of the cage during the match. So Ron Wright's in the back. Uh, obviously, he's got a monitor back there, and he sees what's going on, and he comes storming out of the dressing room. Condry and Hickerson are trying to drag him and hold on to him and control him. And uh, so Les sees him coming, and obviously here comes three guys that are going to be in a cage match with the three he's sitting with. So Les kind of jumps up, and he got between the six men at the set with him, and uh, and Wright was screaming that he's no convict. <laughs> And he wasn't going to be handcuffed like a common criminal. So Les kind of besieged by all around him. He told Ron Wright that he would get his chance to talk on a special personality profile later in the show. If the Southeastern Commissioner, Don Curtis, approved the match. So he then threw it to the ring for Phil's Rainey's announcement for the first match of the day. Ron Wright was still complaining as Connery and Hickerson drug him away. Uh, as Ron Wright uh, was normally the type of guy that was not going to quit easily. So the fans in the studio, they were kind of already fired up, man, by this opening. And then uh, Tor Tanaka entered the studio. And that really took that crowd to another level. They hadn't seen him in a long, long time. And uh, his his already announced opponent in the ring made a critical mistake. Uh, he saw the big man coming to the ring, and when he started to get in the ring, this guy attacked him. <laughs> that was stupid. <laughs> and he paid a high price for it. And he ended up being carried out of the ring when Tanaka finished with him. So then Tanaka took the entire first interview. And uh, he was always a great guy. And the uh, fans just were crazy about him. And he started out by thanking the fans for their reception since his return here. And this, saying how he was looking forward to his Southeastern Championship match. And the following, going to be the following Friday night uh, with the Russian Malenko. He didn't know a whole lot about Malenko, but uh, he was going to learn, that's for sure. So uh, I was still down south at this point, uh, not uh, in Knoxville at all, hardly. So Les and I talked frequently during this time frame about the former Knoxville booker, uh, Robert, you know, uh, who was also down south with me. So Lisk kind of gave me an idea of what was going on. He was the guy I kind of uh, talked to quite a bit to find out his impression of how, how things were there. 
I needed to be on top of that that territory just mm-hmm. as much as I was down south. And uh, uh, so Les and I, we did plenty of talking, and uh, and then uh, I spoke quite a bit to Bob Roop as well. So then uh, Mike Stallings uh, was in the second TV match, and Les said the TV audience uh, was very pleased to see Mike. They they really loved Mike Stallings. He had gotten over. And for those out there that don't know who Mike Stallings was, he's actually the first cousin of Jerry Stubbs. So, you know, these two boys uh, grew up together, Stubbs and Stallings. And, uh, and he had he mm. made quite a name for himself in Knoxville at this point before mm. he left. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a member of the original Southeastern and the initial Southeastern Gulf Coast crew uh, seven months earlier. Uh, Earlier, he'd been down there for seven months, mm-hmm. and he's now back in Knoxville. So he got an impressive win. Uh, Les said was welcomed back by Les on the second interview, and his opponent for the next Friday night uh, was also a very respected veteran at this point, mm-hmm. a guy named Ken Dillinger. And Dillinger uh, interviewed from Studio B. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot to say about each other, uh, one direction or another. They're both <laughs> basically new back in that area. Wow. Hey, I'm curious. Was Mike Stallings older or younger than Jerry Stubbs? That's a relationship. I, d- I didn't know they were cu- their cousins, right? Yeah, first cousins. Uh, yeah. Both of them were great baseball players, as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. And, uh, and uh, could have gone to pros. Was Mike uh, older? Yeah, yeah. Mike uh, Mike was great, uh, great baseball player as well. And uh, yeah. so they were, Mike was probably, uh, he might have been a year older. Okay. But, uh, okay. They were okay. very close to the same age. That's cool. All right. I didn't didn't know that. And uh, I, I, like you, I called Jerry Stubbs a friend. That's cool. All right. So, all right. Was the six-man cage match approved by Don Curtis before the upcoming personality profile, Stud? I'm curious about that. And I'm very interested in hearing what Ron Wright had to say about the proposal from the first of the show about the six-man cage match. And he is going to be handcuffed to the cage. Well, yes, it had been approved, and and as usual, Ron Wright had plenty to say about it, and he was joined, as expected, by his tag champions, Condry and Hickerson, but also by the new masked man, who was wearing the red mask that they had seen in the videos earlier, and uh, Wright made no effort to possibly conceal the identity of the man that he named him right there. He said, this is my destroyer. Told less, this is my destroyer. And uh, the mask, uh, but the mask was new, that's for sure. But the destroyer wore the exact same outfit Bob Roop had before he disappeared. So, I mean, Wright wasn't trying to hide it very much. You know, this is a, we don't know where Roop is, but here's a new guy named the destroyer. So Wright was extremely upset to hear that Don Curtis had approved the six-man tag for the Friday night uh, event, obviously. But before he could go on, Les told him he'd been he'd been asked some questions at the beginning of the show uh, by Ronnie Garvin, by Jimmy Golden, and by Kevin Sullivan. And he said, I didn't answer them because I think the questions are for you to answer. So then Les <laughs> asked, uh, you know, Les uh, asked Ron Wright, he said, you know, Garvin had asked him uh, whose body reminded him of the masked man in the video. And Les <laughs> just pointed uh, on the profile, uh, right straight at Bob Roop, <laughs> you know, and uh, 
And uh, Les said, you know, and, and, and he said, Les said, uh, you know, and that guy right there, I think, knows how to use a shoulder breaker as well. So <laughs> Wright began to laugh. He thought it was kind of a joke. You know, it was a funny little deal. I, I don't know. I, I don't understand what this angle was all about, but uh, it was really different. So Wright began to laugh and, uh, and saying he wasn't out there to answer any question. He was there to ask questions. And he pointed to the masked man and he asked, uh, how could anyone think that was Bob Brew? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure people at home right. were like, wow. <laughs> Les kind of rolled his own eyes and he asked Ron Wright, you know, uh, Jimmy Golden's question from uh -huh. earlier. He said, do you know, uh, and Jimmy's situation was, uh, why is Bob Brew now wearing a mask? <laughs> <laughs> right? so, so Wright answered, you know, he said, he said, yeah, you have to, uh, Les, you, you've, you've got to ask Bob Roop that question. So Les, ask the masked man, <laughs> hey, are you Bob Roop? <laughs> but he got no response. The masked man didn't say anything. So uh, Les tried one last time, and he asked the question Sullivan had asked earlier. He said, uh, why had you, Ron Wright, put a $10,000 bounty on Kevin Sullivan to anyone that could end his career? Wow. So Ron Wright said, I'll answer that one. <laughs> he said, he said, that Kevin Sullivan, he said, he's nothing but a Yankee punk from Boston. That he'd been disrespected me by putting his hands on me. And uh, and he put his hands on a good friend of mine. And uh, and he'd made a horrible mistake by doing it. And that the bounty was now there. And uh, it was going to stay there until someone earned it. Then Wright said it was his turn to ask the questions. So he asked Les, why are my men being forced into a cage match like they were animals? <laughs> and why am I going to be handcuffed to the cage for this match? Uh, good question, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. so, so I asked Les, I said, well, what did you say? And, and Les, Les said, uh, you know, he said, I got even. He said, I told Ron Wright that he'd have to ask Don Curtis and the Southeastern people to answer to that one. Hmm. Basically, hmm. he's not going to answer your question. And he said, I pulled off my lapel microphone. I dropped it onto my chair. And uh, I said, this personality profile's over. Oh. Went back to the set. Well. And, well. He, said, <laughs> yeah, so, and he said, Ron Wright was screaming, man, uh, when Phil Rainey started announcing the next match. <laughs> they, it's the second time they were holding him back during this show. I kind of like the way Les handled the whole thing, Ron. I think that's pretty cool. So how did the TV studio fans and Ron Wright react to everything? Well, Ron Wright, man, he had to be held back by his three inches <laughs> as he tried to get to Les. He was really going to, I guess he thought he was going to whack Les around, you know, <laughs> slap him around or whatever. Yeah. And uh, the studio audience loved it. They were laughing like crazy. Like, wow. wow. Look at Ron Wright, man. Uh, it's a, what a scene. No doubt. All right, so what was up next? Who was on next? Well, the great Malenko, man, and he, uh, as usual, he, he stomped his way to another victory, and, and then he did uh, the third interview of the show, and he was very upset about having to defend his southeastern belt against what he called a much inferior yellow-skinned opponent. And that's the way oh he described the knock. Oh, my God. It was 1978 indeed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, much inferior, too. And yeah. gosh, yeah. they're, they're much better than Tanaka when it came to the wrestling. Yeah. So, 
So the last match on the show was a real thrill for the fans. The same three wrestlers that opened the show, Garvin and Golden and Sullivan, now they're in this six-man tag that's coming up following Friday. They closed out the show with a bang, man, and they, what a great uh, six-man tag list that they had. So at the end of it, Sullivan hooked his sleeper hold on one of the one of the guys. Jimmy Golden drop-kicked one of them, he said, uh, from the top rope, and he sent the guy way about halfway across the studio floor and then Garvin suplexed the last guy and jumped off the top rope in his throat and covered him for the pin. So that had to be a pretty darn good match to end up with. And uh, then they did the last interview. Obviously, they thanked Don Curtis and the Southeastern officials for the opportunity to kick the Southeastern champions' butts and to end the mass charade by pulling the hood off the so-called destroyer. Now they had a name for him. And, uh, and to stop Bomb Roof. Bob Roop's disappearance lie. There's a put end to all this, man. He's here. We're going to show it to everybody who it is. And uh, then they finished by saying we're going to take care of Kevin Sullivan's problem with Ron Wright's, uh, you know, so-called bounty by leaving Wright hanging like the criminal he is by handcuffs on the side of the cage when it's <laughs> all. So that TV should have sold plenty of tickets, stud. For the following Friday night, of course. What happened in the Coliseum six days later? Terry Gibbs beat George McCrary in his match. Mike Stallings won his first match back in Knoxville against Ken Dillinger. Rip Smith got a win over Hippie Mike Boyette. Uh, The Southeastern Championship match between the great Malenko and Tora Tanaka went on next to last because cage matches always went on last. And why? And why is that? Is that just logistically we got to put this assemble this thing? Is that what that's all about? Well, the cage was never set up until it was ready to be used. Uh, basically, I think for at least three reasons. There's mm-hmm. probably more, but I can think of three reasons right off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the cage was set up, if you had other matches that hadn't been finished at that point, then they end up having to wrestle in the cage. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. Gotcha. There. Yeah. And yeah. Then they, so they, you know, their their matches weren't supposed to be cage matches. Right. So right. Uh, that wouldn't make sense for that to be happening. Uh, you know, they're not billed as cage matches. Uh, the second reason, I guess, is the fans watching the assembly of the cage was a part of the buildup to the cage match itself. You know, uh, it it was it was really amazing to see how big pieces of the cage brought in and how they were placed together, and uh, so part of that was the build up. And I guess the last reason that I think was simply that the match inside a cage was a had special significance. It was the only type of match of its kind, uh, and it had a special significance, maybe above all the other matches that you can think of, probably. So championship, so the championship match between Tor Tanaka and uh, Boris Malenko was the next to last match of the evening instead of the last match. Uh, both men in this one were bleeding. Uh, Tor Tanaka was very much in control of the match at the end until just the same as the week before, the new mass man, the, the so-called destroyer by Ron Wright, came down to help Malenko again, just as he had done the week before against Ronnie Garvin. And uh, But this time, Ronnie Garvin was watching from the back of the Coliseum, and uh, he came down to help Tanaka. And all four of them, Les said, got into quite a row, man. Uh, 
And uh, the, everybody in the Coliseum was on their feet. The referee rang the bell, called the match a no contest, even though it was a no disqualification match. You know, and he couldn't uh, he couldn't decide who the winner would be. It was just uh, he declared it a no contest. Uh, the cage match brought Garvin and Ron Wright's destroyer back to the ring again. Obviously, they'd been there in the match before fighting. And uh, along with them came Jimmy Golden, Kevin Sullivan, Dennis Condry, and Phil Higgerson. And all six men were in the ring when the referee came outside uh, to, to handcuff a struggling Ron Wright to the cage. Uh, and Les said Ron Wright, it took him five minutes to get Ron Wright's hand and, <laughs> and hooked into the cage. And when he finally got him hooked up, Boy, he said the crowd popped. They were into it, man. Uh, Wright was going crazy. He couldn't do nothing. He's hanging there uh, with one arm in the air. Uh, then the ref put the handcuff uh, key in his pocket, along with the key to the door of the cage. When he got back in the cage, he locked that door. When he entered the cage, he signaled for the bell. And, and according to Les, all hell broke loose. And uh, so Wright released, uh, you know, uh, soon all three of Wright's men were bleeding. Pretty, Les said pretty quickly, man, they were they were getting the hell beat out of them. And the crowd was loving it. They were going crazy. And then Les said the destroyer's mask had almost been pulled off twice early in the match. And when the masked man knocked this, the destroyer knocked the referee out, and he took both keys from his pocket. And, uh, and he got out of the ring, and... Uh, he had the key to the door to the cage, and he also had the key to Ron Wright's handcuff. And when he got to the floor, he passed both those keys through the wire to Ron Wright. And uh, Ron Wright released his handcuffs. Uh, then he went around. He opened the steel cage door. He got in, and then he locked the door back behind him. Now it's four on three. And he pulled out his chisel, man, and he went to work. Uh, Les said it wasn't long before the other three guys in the ring were bleeding. And uh, there was three on four at that point. And uh, some of the crowd, Les said, uh, got out of their seats, man, and started edging toward the ring. It was uh-huh. a really a hot deal, you know. I mean, uh, wow. they got him in the cage here. He's not supposed to be in there. And uh, and he's got his chisel. So, so uh, Ronnie Garvin uh, Started at some point there, Les said, changing the tide, man. And then when he did, it kind of got uh, Kevin and uh, Jimmy Golden uh, on fire, too. And uh, so tables were turned there real quickly. And Ron Wright still got the keys, right? So, so now he used the key to get in. Now he's scrambling to use the key to get out. So he had to unlock the cage door. And, uh, and then all of his group, they, they got to manage to get out of the cage and out on the floor. Another referee came down about that time, and they just knocked him out. Uh, he was, they had to carry him out of the building. Uh, so uh, it, it, was, it was quite an, quite an ending to it, man. Uh, and what, a, uh, what, an, what an event that had to be. Wow, no doubt. All right, so it sounds like an incredibly wild match. What was the attendance for this Coliseum event? Well, it was just under the 5,000 average per Coliseum event that we'd been doing all summer long. I mean, we'd been there and, uh, and a lot of events had done that summer out there in the park uh, above the 5,000 that we were steadily getting in the Coliseum. And, uh, and I was kind of 
taking into consideration the fact that Bob Roop had only been booking for about a month. It fell a little below 5,000, but he'd only been there booking for about a month. And uh, it was in the fall of the year, which was normally the slowest time of the year. And it was only about uh, three weeks after the world title events with Harley Race. So, uh, you know, I cut him some slack uh, in the fact that it did drop uh, below that 5,000 figure. Mm. All right, so I think you said earlier you were going to be talking about uh, taking a look at how Bob Roop had been doing in his first month as a booker in southeastern Knoxville. So to me, it appears the Ron Wright, Bob Roop, and Mask Destroyer combination and its intrigue was really going to be something kind of unusual. Well, it was to me as well, Dave. I mean, you know, it was a twist I'd never seen uh, in my wrestling years and a, and a really unusual angle that was basically in its early stages. It's not over. This thing is not over. So so I was impressed that Bob Roop had recognized, as I had when I came to Knoxville in the fall of 1974, when I started Southeastern Wrestling, I recognized that Ron Wright was a legend in that part of the country, and he was a critical part of the future success of the territory. And I was right about that. I made Ron Wright my first big star baby face. Uh, I turned myself heel uh, to get the business started, and wow, we got it started. It worked. And it appeared Bob Roop was going to use Ron Wright in the same way, basically. He was going to use him strongly and well, and, uh, and I thought that was probably a pretty good idea. Uh, my concern was how well Roop was going to be able to recruit talent. And mm-hmm. that was key to being a great booker. Mm-hmm. And some very big stars at this point, Dave, the Mongolian Stomper, Don Carson, gorgeous George Jr., my brother Robert, had recently transferred down to the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. So uh, my thoughts were, and my question was, who will be the big names to replace them? Uh, that was my question. Oh, my God, that's a huge load of personality and talent that had just left the market, like you said, to go south. So anyway, that that's a great question. So uh, maybe, hey, let's look at that after the break. This is a good place to do that. Let's do the break right now. It's been a really fantastic first half of this Studcast so far. So when we come back, we're going to find out what was happening with those four stars you just named. That's a ton of personality in southeastern Gulf Coast. That is going to be up next on this Studcast when we come back. Ron's novel Brutus has captivated readers around the world. It is on its way to becoming a classic. If you like chilling stories with unexpected twists and turns throughout, this book is for you. Get it now on his website at tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Click Stud Store and look for the lion. The book is only $19.99, and the autograph copy with personal comments from the stud himself is only $29.99. Both prices include free shipping. Fans everywhere compare it to Jaws. It may someday become a movie, and the autograph copy will be priceless. TNstud.com, $19.99 or $29.99 for your piece of history. All right, welcome back in, Studcast fans. Another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Episode number 271 is called Tanaka Returns, Ron Turns Babyface. All right, here we go. So we've ridden 500 miles south now. You just turned babyface in Mobile, Alabama. 
Tuesday, October 4th, 1978, in southeastern Gulf Coast, the hottest new territory in the wrestling world in 1978, no doubt about it. So where do we ride from here? Well, we're going back to Mobile, as you said, for one of my first matches as a babyface in southeastern Gulf Coast. And after more than seven months as a top heel man, and my brother's arrival and uh, seeing his struggles kind of forced me to support my family and change my ways, you know. And uh, so we're going to discuss the tremendous card that would be in all three major markets in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory that week. And that will be the week of October 7th. We'll be in Dothan with this card. It would be October 10th in Montgomery and on October 11th in Mobile. And uh, here was the card. Uh, for those three cities uh, in that in that early part of October. It was the first ever triple main event since Southeastern Gulf Coast had arrived. Uh, Charlie Cook opened it up against El Diablo, who was a wrestler named Frank Morrell, who had been around a long, long time. The wrestling pro, Tarzan Baxter, wrestled against Dr. D, David Schultz, Rick, Robert Gibson, uh, the only Gibson remaining in Southeastern Gulf Coast, Ricky had been gone uh, mm -hmm. because he lost to loser leave. And uh, Robert was facing Norvell Austin. And then there were the first of three main events, a Texas death match with my brother, Robert, taking on Don Carson. Uh, both major belts in the territory had changed names from Gulf Coast to Southeastern at this point. We decided to call it Southeastern uh, rather than Gulf Coast. And the Southeastern tag belts of the Assassins managed by Billy Spears, were on the line against a great team, wow, of Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles. And then in the last match of the night, uh, it was the Mongolian Stomper against me. Wow. Uh, wow. The old Tennessee stud. Yeah, you said three main events. That's exactly what that sounded like right there. All right, so I think this is probably the best card yet for Southeastern Gulf Coast. I'm sure you've, you videotaped the match from Mobile the week before, in which you saved your brother. You had to have done that. I can't wait to hear how you put together the TV show that sets this whole card up. That's going to be cool. Well, we certainly did tape that match, obviously, man. And we'd gone uh, two weeks around the territory, basically, before that match. Uh, with me kind of watching my brother get the heck beat out of him by Gorgeous George Jr. and Don Carson, by just the two of them, though. And, uh, and I kind of stood and watched and then went back in the dressing room, did nothing about it. So uh, the angle was finally done on this night in Mobile. And uh, it was my turn uh, as a, to be a baby face. Uh, it's just three days before the TV that we're going to be talking about in a minute was made. And uh, so no one except those fans in Mobile had seen it. And because of that fact, to get the full impact of what happened, on the TV show, we opened it up with uh, just Robert by himself at the set with Charlie Platt. And Charlie made some comments to kind of set the stage for this video as being something special. Fans are going to see something that they probably never thought they would see. And uh, then he and Robert watched and described the video. And it showed a very impressive record crowd in Mobile because it was in that same time frame as a uh, Harley Race and the world title. So Robert in the match uh, was very bloody, and he 
He was at this point where it was picked up, where the action was picked up. There were three guys beating him up. The Mongolian Stomper, Gorgeous George Jr., and Don Carson. Wow. And then there was a shot of me in a mat. There's a huge crowd. So I'm in the back, but you could see me standing in the back. I was surrounded by fans, Mm -hmm. and I was watching it all go down, Mm -hmm. just like I had been watching it go down uh, for a couple of weeks before this. And then fans in, in the, you know, in the studio, when they saw this, they began to boo the video, which was good. <laughs> they were into it. Yep. And, uh, and maybe the people at home as well, because they had seen this, you know, hey, it's going to happen again. Yep. And, yep. and they, like I said, they'd seen something similar in their own arenas, a lot of them, except this time it was different. <laughs> the fans in the Mobile building, they actually got behind me and forced me toward the ring. Uh, and, and then at about halfway there and I'm watching and uh, my brother's bleeding like crazy. He's got three guys beating the heck out of him. And I decided, well, what the heck? I, I can't let this happen any longer. So I took off, man, uh, toward the ring to save my brother. Uh, well, there was more than 7,000 people in that building and they went crazy. Uh, and I was very surprised to see the entire studio crowd start cheering even before I got to the ring when they watched this. So my brother and I, we fought back to back until we sent all three of those wrestlers that had been beating him up Mm -hmm. out of the ring. And then we had this pretty much touching uh, moment uh, for the Mobile fans. And now at this point, all the fans across the southeastern Gulf Coast were seeing it, Uh, all of the fans. It was, you know, got to see it. We ended up in the ring, a big hug in the middle of the ring. And so it was kind of time for me to be seen at this point. You know, I was no longer a heel uh, to any of the fans. And, and I was kind of expecting when I walked out to the set with Rob and Charlie that I was going to get a fairly warm welcome. But I was totally blown away, man. I mean, after seven months of being an ass to all those fans, <laughs> I was instantly accepted. It was like, wow, I can't believe it. Uh, everyone in the studio stood up. Uh, and, and as Robert and I we, we hugged each other again right there on the set when I got to the set. Wow. Okay, so that really had to be a big moment for not only you and your brother, but for all the wrestling fans in that part of the country. That was that was a, not just a moving but kind of an earth-shaking moment for wrestling fans. Well, what happened to me, Dave, is it, it proved the power of a well-done angle, but it also showed me to fans out there, family meant more than anything it's else. Exactly, and, uh, yeah. And, and if family was involved in it, it was twice as effective and, and as any other type of angle. It, it, and it kind of was at that moment, Dave, mm-hmm. that I realized the true power of family in the sport mm-hmm. and in the future of the territory of this particular territory, how my family uh, uh, and, and, and another one in particular were going to set all <laughs> kinds of records based upon the two families. Oh, listen, I know you're talking about your family and the legendary Armstrong family years in the future. That's got to be what you're talking about. <laughs> you got it, my man. And wow. Almost exactly four years later in the same city, Bob Armstrong turned heel on me, and it was the first time and the only time ever in his life he was a heel. And uh, that would explode 
absolutely explode an already very successful territory. By 82, we're, we're our business is just rocking. Mm-hmm. But when Bob Armstrong did that, family versus family, uh, it created the longest-running family feud in the history of the sport. Wow. And it made both Southeastern and later Continental uh, two of the most successful wrestling companies in history. Oh, no doubt. Hey, I tell you, and you know it, we could spend many studcasts on that historic subject alone. Let's get back to the WTVY studio in Dothan, Alabama, as the crow flies probably three miles from where I'm sitting right now. After the video, what happened? Well, the Mongolian stopper was in the first match. And uh, boy, he created his usual pandemonium in the studio. Gorgeous George Jr. trying to chase him around to get him into the ring and to keep him away from the fans. And then uh, Don Carson had a chance to join, to join Charlie at the set. Now, me and Rob had gone from the set, obviously. And, uh, and he spent a couple of minutes there discussing what he thought was the biggest mistake of my life. Ron Fuller's life, you know, and he told to Charlie, he said, you know, he could have remained friends with me and gorgeous George Jr. and the Mongolian Stomper, and he, and he could have avoided all these injuries that's now ahead for him. We're going to hurt him. He's going to get hurt. And uh, and he said, all of, and all of this because he chose his brother rather than us. Why did he do that, Charlie? That <laughs> 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 uh, was that sounds like a Doc Carson argument for darn sure, man. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he had a lot, he had a lot more to say, uh, but, uh, you know, he had, but the stopper in the meantime, annihilated his opponent and quickly as usual. And uh, Gigi brought his monster after the, after he got the win to the set for the first interview and uh, Stomper brought his bu- his big old huge truck shock. And I mean, he worked that thing over while he's standing behind Gigi and, uh, and Gigi's interview was very similar to what Carson had just said. He was predicting that the Stomper was going to hurt me bad, man, that, uh, I'd made a big mistake. I should have stayed where I was and that had the good friendship that I was creating with these guys. So, uh, and then it was Carson's turn in the ring next. And his opponent fared even worse than the Stomper's opponent. Carson was able, obviously, behind the referee's back to load his peanut butter glove, and he busted the opponent's eye, and then he punished him pretty badly before he finally ended up pinning him. But during this short match, Gigi came out and sat down at the set with Charlie Platt, uninvited, and uh, and he kind of parroted the same thing again that Carson had said, uh, the whole story was, is it going to be a lot of punishment for the Fullers from this point on that these boys were in big trouble. These guys were, were not going to not gonna fare too well. So after two hasty heels opened up the show, you know, two nasty boy, uh, you know, and nobody liked that group of guys for sure. Uh, it didn't get any better for the fans. The assassins and the manager, uh, Billy Spears, uh, joined Charlie for the personality profile. And uh, Spears and Charlie uh, sat down in the big chairs, and as the assassins uh, had their belts on, stood behind Spears. And uh, Billy had a big chocolate cake with him, and he told Charlie they were celebrating their third straight month as tag champions, Hmm. and they wanted to do it on the personality profile so fans could could experience it with them. They loved me and, you know, Billy Spears. 
they love me and I know they want to be a part of this. Oh, nice. So, so uh, right away, Spears demanded somebody bring a table to sit their cake on <laughs> until they were going to cut it at the end of the profile. We'll cut the cake. Yeah. And you can have some, Charlie, you know. And, uh, and then he had his say about how stupid he thought it was to change the name of the Gulf Coast Belt to Southeastern. And he wanted to know who was responsible for that decision. So Charlie was answering his question as best he could uh, as, as the table. <laughs> Brought a table, little table, and uh, the cake was set on the table. So, uh, you know, Charlie was interrupted a little bit, and then he began to explain again, you know, uh, uh, why the name changed, but he was interrupted by Spears, uh, saying how much better the wrestlers were here now than before. So basically, he's saying you shouldn't have changed the name, but now your wrestlers are much better. So then, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, he, and then he got on to Ricky Gibson. You know, he said, you know, they're, they're better because that punk Ricky Gibson, for one, is no longer here. You know, and he got beat in the loser leave town match. And uh, and it, their plans now were to take care of his brother, get rid of the last Gibson. <laughs> and uh, so Charlie's trying to get a little bit of control during the course of this pro celib celebratory uh -huh. profile. Uh -huh. And uh, he began to, you know. Uh, he, he tried to inter interrupt Spears, and Spears was on a roll. I mean, he asked for someone then to bring a knife so they could cut their cake, and uh, and he never missed a breath. He just went on. Charlie couldn't say a thing. Yeah. And he yeah. went right straight into the fact that they were looking for some new and better competition than those Gibson punks anyway. They were tired of wrestling these punks. And, uh, and it was about time this sorry wrestling company got some better opponents for them. So then speaking of at the time he spoke about better opponents, Tony, Tony Charles, one of their next opponents, are going to be teaming up with Bob Armstrong against them. He kind of came from out of nowhere, and he brought a knife, a giant knife, man, <laughs> cut <the> cake. <laughs> and uh, so, so Billy Spears, uh, you know, uh, he looked horrified, man, and he jumped up from his chair, and he pushed the table with the cake on it behind him. And his two champions jumped around in front of him to protect him from Tony Charles. Right. Tony Charles brandishing a big knife there standing in front of him, right? <laughs> so while all this is going on, Bob Armstrong went out the back door of the TV station. He went around the TV station and came in the front entrance, the one the fans used to enter the studio. He came inside. He sneaked underneath the bleachers where all the fans sat, right? <laughs> and he, and he, went, he went right straight behind Billy Spears' back, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, Spears' men, they're in front of him, and uh, all the eyes are on Tony Charles, and the cameras are focused on this entire group of activity going on here. And in the back, you can see Bob Armstrong sneak in there. And uh, so I was watching the monitor, like everyone in the studio and those at home, and I could see Bob sneak in behind Spears and pick up the cake. Okay. All right. So, so then Spears, Spears was still screaming at Tony Charles. You know, and uh, so Bob tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around to see who it was. And Bob smashed that black cake in his face. <laughs> and it went all over his all white suit, man, that he always wore. And uh, oh, the studio exploded naturally, man, in laughter and so Bob ran back by by Charles, Charlie's regular set, and Tony joined him, and they went straight into the dressing room. 
And uh, so when the camera kind of got it back on, <laughs> on, on the speakers, Charlie Platt couldn't help but laugh. He was laughing like everybody in the building was, right? <laughs> and Spears was screaming and wiping cake off of his face and, and onto his suit. And uh, so Charlie, man, he he, he couldn't, he, he said, we got to close this profile. <laughs> and the cake's all over the floor. And then the studio audience was still going crazy and and Spears and his men, they they went back into their own dressing room over there. Oh, stud, you got to be kidding. That's that is absolutely the funniest ever because it's Billy Spears, and everybody remembers if you remember him, the all white suits that he wore, and I can just picture what that looked like. So, wow, how do you follow that? Well, you followed it with Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles. They were in the next match, man. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so they passed by the cake-covered set. They're, they're trying to clean up over there on the way to the ring. And obviously, they got a tremendous ovation, not just because of who they were, but also because of what they just done or what had just happened. So they quickly took care of business in the ring, man. The bell was rung and their hands was raised. And uh, while uh, Spears, Spears, uh, Spears and his boys decided that uh, they weren't through, you know, and uh, so they came charging the ring out of the dressing room. And uh, so, you know, uh, Bob and Tony saw them coming and they just simply stepped out of the ring. They stood on the floor pointing at Spears and laughing because he still had a cake on his face <laughs> and his suits all black and white. And, and along with everybody else in the building, they had a tremendous laugh. And I'm sure thousands of people at home, thousands and thousands had a laugh as well. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so uh, then a spirit standing there, man, and he just, he, he's got cake on his face and on his suit, and he's just jumping up and down. He's so mad, he just can't stand it, right? So the fun continued because uh, Billy and his team, they, they're in the next interview. So they went to the set with Charlie, and he still had cake everywhere for the next interview, man. They were there, and, uh, and they talked about the upcoming Southeastern Tag Championship match with Armstrong and Charles. But before they got to say much, Bob and Tony were in another studio. <laughs> so the cameras went to them first, and they could hardly talk. <laughs> they could see Spears on the, on, the, on the other camera, on the monitor, and they were still laughing about what happened. Uh, but they did get around to promising Spears he was going to get that better competition he had asked for a few minutes earlier. <laughs> and uh, and he, they, he better be ready to hand the belts over come, come next week. You, you're going to get some real competition. So when the cameras returned to the set with Charlie, Billy Spears was crazy with rage. I mean, he was just, he, he couldn't stand it. It was just, he couldn't hardly sit there. And he threatened to go to his car and get his gun and take care of this. Right? <laughs> wow. And, and, and as he was ranting, his men kept removing these small pieces of cake from his suit and eating it. <laughs> so, so it just kept going, man. So, so then Spears, you know, he stormed off the set uh, and had, half the interview time was still remaining. And his team kind of followed him. You know, they're wearing masks. You couldn't see their face. But I think they were kind of laughing to themselves. <laughs> wow. it happened. All right, I tell you, anybody that missed this particular TV was going to be definitely sorry when they found out about this. So, all right, so what about the last TV match? Well, the wrestler who, who said he was never going to wrestle on TV mm. since the day he had arrived in southeastern Gulf Coast showed up. 
um, you had changed your mind. You were going to wrestle on TV after seven months, Stud? Yes, uh, I, that's exactly what happened, my man. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and it, it, I got a huge ovation from the crowd. It was really amazing for me. That's whole experience, man. Uh, I had turned babyface once before in Knoxville, uh, but it, it was bigger down here in the Gulf Coast than it was there. Yeah. And uh, the match, the TV match didn't last long while. I started, I started bumping this poor guy, and I was slamming him, and I suplexed him, and, you know, and uh, it, it didn't last very long. Uh, but before it got over, the Mongolian stomper came out of the dressing room, and he was followed by Gigi. He's trying to get into the ring. Gigi's trying to hold him back. Well, you know, the crowd, the studio crowd – was about as ready as I was for anything, man. They were they were really into it, like, wow, we're going to. So Rob came down to ringside. It's just at the end of the match, man, and he stood in my corner. And then Don Carson came out of the dressing room. Uh, fans were going crazy in the studio, you know, and I finally pinned the guy. And when I did, uh, Robert came in the ring, raised my hand, and the three of the guys were on the outside of the ring. They all three got up on the apron on three different sides of the ring. It looked like it was about to go down, man. But uh, then they backed off. They decided they didn't want to go for it. Uh, so Rob and I made the last interview from the set. And we told the fans uh, that we were born and bred for times like this. And that uh, the three hoodlums in the other dressing room could bring it on next week. We'll be prepared. And then at the end of the interview, we added that uh, they might ought to think long and hard about it because we just had a talk with our father. Hmm. He's going to be there for this one. Oh, wow. Wow. Man, what a great TV stud. I mean, you really had everything on this show. So what happened that next week in those three major markets of southeastern Gulf Coast? Well, Charlie Cook beat El Diablo. Uh Dr. D, David Schultz, uh, won over the wrestling pro. Norvell Austin got the best of Robert Gibson. Uh, when, uh, good to their word, the assassins had mentioned in the profile that they were going to take care of Robert Gibson. Uh, Robert Gibson was getting the best of Norvell, and the two assassins came down, and they double pile drive Robert Gibson and left him laying. The referee was down, and uh, it was it was pretty bad for Robert Gibson. So their intentions are still kind of uh, pointed toward uh, getting Robert Gibson. Uh, Robert, my brother, beat Don Carson in that Texas death match. And then Bob Armstrong, <laughs> Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles tore the house down before they even got to the ring that night. They brought a big chocolate cake with them to the ring. <laughs> and all three of those cities. <laughs> for their championship tag match with the assassins and Billy Spears. <laughs> and, uh, they took more, more back to the dressing room with them than the cake. Uh, they took back the Southeastern tag belts with them too, man. So, and then my match, uh, with the Mongolian stomper ended with a ring full of wrestlers, uh, uh, including my father from the audience. And a no contest verdict from the referee. So the card for the three major cities in the next stud cast is going to be even better than this one. Wow. 
All right. So what about attendance? Let's talk attendance for the three major markets that all had this same card. Well, Dothan had uh, 4,300. Uh, Montgomery had 3,500. And Mobile had 5,600 in the smaller expo halls. Totally sold out. That was as many as we were going to ever put in there probably. Uh, so that was a total of 14,000. 400 fans in three nights alone that week. That's, uh, yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good start to a week. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. That'll, that'll pass. All right. Stud time for another learning tree question. We're going to do it. Absolutely. Here we go. Uh, Alan Blaine ask you recently got dates with Harley race for world title matches in 1978. When did world champion Harley race return to the Southeastern territories and was there any regularly scheduled dates for territories or was it whenever you wanted to have the champion? Chase, uh, you know, I kind of thought we might be going to get a question about Harley <laughs> after this recent visit that is to the Southeastern. Uh, 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 that's a good question, Dave. That's really Mr. Blaine. I think the name mm -hmm. was Mr. Yep. Blaine. Yep. That's a good question. Uh, you know, and I think it was, uh, uh, I think I, I think I could probably, my best answer for, is to answer the last questions you ask uh, rather than the first. Uh, so so let's start with your question about did we get regularly scheduled dates for the world champion or or just whenever we wanted him, you know? And uh, the very short answer and the, and the, and the, and the honest answer is uh, no to both counts. You know, you... We didn't get to to uh, uh, get regular dates. You're going to get him every mm, it's September and every uh, every November or whatever it is. Uh, and we certainly didn't get to say we want him on these dates, you know. So, and, you know, the president of the National Wrestling Alliance handled the scheduling for the champion. And during most of my years as a member of the NWA from 1975 to 1985, that guy was Sam Muchnick the St. Louis, Missouri promoter. Uh, he was the president of the organization for most of the almost 40 years that uh, it was an organization and it had its own champion. Uh, the NWA World Wrestling Champion, Dave, undoubtedly had maybe the most grueling schedule, uh, especially considering the number of miles traveled of any athlete on earth. Uh, booking him was probably close to a full-time job for Sam Muchnick, and everyone took his dates. Hmm. The dates that were offered to them, every promoter and every owner, took the dates that were offered to them without question, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there might have been some guys that were getting some special, but uh, not that I was ever aware of. Uh, Sam Muchnick wasn't a big guy, and, uh, and he never wrestled, but he was a powerful man in the sport, and he had tremendous respect. Uh, he was the he was the kind of man that needed to handle that scheduling job for the world champion. So as far as when we were going to get our next world champion dates, we knew at least six months in advance, so that we could make plans appropriately. Yeah. Right at the world champion, you gotta know it way ahead of time, mm -hmm. and uh, you know how many days you're gonna have him. All of that stuff takes a lot of preparation not just for the National Wrestling Alliance, but for the promoters themselves. And Harley 
was uh, last in the territory just a couple of weeks ago uh, in our stud cast mm -hmm. in September 1978. And we knew that we were going to get him again in February 1979. Wow. Yeah, uh, that kind of stretches <laughs> it out and gives you an opportunity to set the plan around the heavyweight championship match. That is so cool. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for your question, Mr. Blaine. That is awesome. All right. So uh, really another great one, Stud. I don't know how you handled it back in 1978. I can only imagine what lies ahead in 1979. I can't wait to hear about that. Hey, folks, on Facebook, Ron has thousands of Facebook friends on his three sites and appreciates every one of them. One site is full. One cannot take more friends. To become a friend, please go to Ron's Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or Ron Fuller Welch site. Like him there, follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend on Facebook. Twitter, find him at Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Follow him there as well. The YouTube channel is called Southeastern Rewind. Southeastern Rewind. It's filled with all kinds of information about information about wrestling and videos as well. It's also a great place to find out more about what's happening and what's new on the new tremendous streaming channel, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Speaking of which, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud. His old school Southeastern Continental and USA TV shows that now number in the hundreds is there. A new three-hour Stars of the Sport Super Stud Cast with former NWA champ Terry Funk and Stan Hansen with all photos from beginning to end. The ninth chapter, chapter, the ninth chapter of the thrilling lion story Brutus is now there too in audio form. More than two hundred hours of wrestling entertainment. And it grows every week. You can subscribe now and begin the wrestling ride of your life. Only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year gets you the best old school wrestling streaming channel on the planet. The one-week free trial is still available. It is the best deal in wrestling. All right, Stud, where do we ride next week? Well, we're going to be uh, heading uh, next week <clears throat> into southeastern Knoxville. And it's going to be getting the first ever tag team Russian death match with stars Ronnie Garvin and Tor Tanaka going to be against the great Malenko and Ron Wright's destroyer. Also, we're going to have tag championship match there, bounty match there, and much more. And we'll discuss, obviously, the card. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the TV promoting it, the results of the matches and the attendance. Uh, we're going to also ride south in the southeastern Gulf Coast for a spectacular event there with uh, going to have loser leave match, going to have an I quit match, going to have two championship matches and some of the best wrestlers on earth at that time. And we'll talk television, uh, results of the matches and the attendance, plus some information about the coming war, 1979, like we've been doing weekly now. And then hopefully we're going to end up with another learning tree question. Uh, and I want to thank everybody, Dave, uh, for their patience uh, and, and apologize again for having no studcast last week. But it's great to be back this week and uh, tell your friends and neighbors out there about us. And uh, please take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. 
For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.